Well, join me by turning in your Bible today to Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 56. Our passage today comes from the Gospel according to Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 56. If you were with us last week, you know we're in a section of Luke's gospel dealing with Jesus' authority over all things. Uh, last week it was danger and demons. Today it is disease and death. All of which is owing its existence to the presence of sin. All of these things we're looking at owe their existence to the presence of sin in the world. And yet, over and over again, as we read through this section of Luke's gospel, we see Jesus Christ breaking into the world. And as he does, he speaks. And every last shred of the world, the flesh, the devil's power is just brought to nothing. By the word of his power, he speaks, and all of these forces of darkness flee. The power of sin is brought to nothing. Everything we're looking at here centers around uh, the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Christ has stilled uh, the disciples' fears while they were out on the boat. You remember that scene? Uh, they have made it to the other, sea, uh, other side of the sea where the Gerizim demoniac was delivered from that legion of demons. You remember there at the end of that episode, the, the townspeople asked Jesus to leave, not knowing what he would do next. And they, uh, he did that. He and his disciples did exactly what they asked. And they, they departed and now they move back across the other side of the sea where the same crowd that they had left is waiting still for them, waiting on him to return. And that's where we meet up again with Christ and his disciples. So with God's help, if you would turn your hearts, give your attention to the reading of God's word from Luke chapter eight, beginning in verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, 
your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. We have two stories before us today and they are very much intertwined. You have two daughters. Uh, one is the, the, the literal physical daughter of Jairus. The other is called daughter uh, by Jesus. There are two very desperate situations. There are two uh, situations involving 12 years. One, there is 12 years of life, now this little girl is on the verge of death. In the other, there is 12 years of agony. So you have 12 years. There are two needy souls, uh, each of them falling down before their only hope of help and salvation. So let's look at these together. We start with Jairus, and just like on the other side of the uh, Sea of Galilee in that Gentile region, as soon as Jesus comes back across and he steps ashore, he encounters someone in great need. Only this time, uh, this individual, this man that he finds in need is not at all like the demon-possessed man that we saw uh, on the other side, at least on the surface. This time, it's not a Gentile, it's a Jew. And not just any Jew at that, he's a ruler. He's a ruler of, of the synagogue. So he's a man of good repute. He's an honorable man. He's a man of, of stature. He has a social standing in the community, in terms of just the externals. When you look at these two individuals, they could not be more different. This man, this Jewish ruler, is at the, is, is, he's at the top of, of the social ladder. As far as his reputation goes, as far as his social respectability goes, in the synagogue, uh, he would have been looked up to. He would have been responsible for the reading of the law, for, for making sure that laws related to ceremonial cleanliness were uh, ritually observed. He would have been well-respected in the community. So on the, on the face of things, there is a very strong contrast between these two individuals, between this man and the one that comes before this Gentile demoniac out in Gentile pig country. But then there's one key thing to note that you see here. One, a crucial thing that they hold in common. You don't have to scratch very far beneath the surface to see it. They're both basically the same. 
They're both basically the same at the end of the day. They both face a situation in life they're utterly powerless to address. They can't do anything to address it. They both stand in tremendous need. You know, for one of them, it's, it's very obvious. Uh, the situation is so blatant. You can look at the man and it's obvious he's naked, he's demon-possessed, he lives in tombs, he's harming himself night and day. Uh, demons are constantly driving him out into the desert, so he, he is utterly overwhelmed by the forces of spiritual darkness. The other man, he doesn't look like that. He looks a whole lot more dignified a whole lot more dignified on the outside. He's probably highly educated. He's a man of means. He probably was well-dressed, someone everyone in the community knew and loved, respected, but neither of them have managed to find their way in a fallen world unscathed. Neither of them have managed to come out of a world ravaged by sin, untouched by, by its effects, They both stand in need. They both need rescuing. They both need salvation that they cannot provide for themselves. Jairus has this daughter. She's 12 years old. Some of you are parents. Think about a 12-year-old little girl. She's dying. To top it all off, she is his only daughter. So you imagine the knots that his stomach is in. You imagine the sense of urgency that is overwhelming him. So what does he do? Well, this Jewish leader of a synagogue comes and he flings himself down in front of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, this one that he has heard of. He goes and he begs Christ to come to his house. Falling at Jesus' feet, he implores him to come to his house. He pleads with him. Do you see how the text draws our attention to Jairus' posture here? To his humility, you have this man of great stature. He's respected. He, he's, he's got standing in the community, but he doesn't use that with Jesus. He doesn't come a strutting up to Christ with his chest puffed out. He doesn't use his, his position or his, his status in society as a kind of bargaining chip with the Lord. He doesn't rely on his title. He doesn't try to see if he can find a way, hey, you know who I am. Try to twist Jesus's arm in that kind of way. No, he comes in humility. Uh, He comes pleading for help. This man of prestige comes and forgetting what anyone else may think about him, he throws himself down on the shore of the Sea of Galilee in the middle of of this enormous crowd that is looking, waiting on the Lord Jesus Christ. He casts himself on the mercy of Jesus, no doubt calling to mind many of the scriptures that he would have known so well from his own ministry within his synagogue. Passages like Psalm 149 and verse four says that God adorns the humble with salvation. 
He adorns the humble with salvation. And this, this man perceives something in the ministry of Christ and the claims that Jesus has made of himself. And he, he literally prostrates himself before the Lord. He humbles himself and he pleads and he, he begs that Jesus would go with him. Well, this is our hope, brothers and sisters, that God adorns the humble with salvation, that when we go to the Lord in humility, when we prostrate ourselves, not to make a show out of externals, but when we prostrate ourselves, uh, when it's a reflection of the inner man, God adorns the humble with salvation. He, He rescues those that look to him, who call upon his name. And that's exactly what happens here. Jesus hears him. He hears this man's cry and he goes with him. Isn't that, that wonderful? He listens to his petition and he begins to make his way. Now, before we get there, Luke leaves us with a cliffhanger. It says, as Jesus went, the people pressed around him. That's going to be important for us in a minute, but, but first, you, the, the story with Jairus is interrupted. He makes you just hold your breath for a minute. Pretend you don't know what's going to, to happen with him. Verse 43, and there was a woman who had, who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Each one of these four episodes uh, we're looking at last week and this show needy souls in, in what you describe as worst case scenarios. Out on the boat, not just a minor thunderstorm, the boat is taking on water. Master, master, we are perishing, we're dying. They, they, they realize they're, they're facing impending death. You get to the other side, the Gerizim demoniac. He's not just possessed by one demon. He has a legion of demons. No one is able to restrain him. No one is able to, 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 to get their arms and uh, deal with the, the powers of spiritual darkness that are... Uh, possessing this man. They'd done everything they knew to do. It was all in vain. You hear the same kind of echoes here. Uh, This woman has not just fallen ill as of late. She's had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Some kind of hemorrhage for 12 years she has been dealing with. And she, you see the text, she has exhausted all of her money. All of her uh, money on physicians. She's gone from one doctor to another, so she's financially drained. She is not only sick, she's poor. No one was able to help her. The other gospels say, in fact, she's gone from bad to worse. Just keeps getting more and more dire. Some years ago, um, when I was first diagnosed with, with epilepsy, uh, many of you were here and the, the, the condition was very trying uh, for me and my, my family. And I was having a lot of seizures that we couldn't get under control. It was pretty debilitating. Uh, it was very, very discouraging. 
and doctors weren't able to help. We tried all kinds of medicines. At last, we got an appointment with, with someone we'd been told was the top specialist in the nation, um, the top epileptologist, uh, maybe in the world. And, and we researched online and everything seemed to bear that out. He seemed to be on the bleeding edge of research and it was lecturing around the world. And finally we got in to see him and things went from bad to worse. <laughs> it just got worse and worse. And then COVID hit and we were doing these virtual appointments. And one day, my dear wife and I are sitting in the, uh, my study at home, and we're in the virtual waiting room, waiting for him to, to come on. And um, we're waiting, and we're waiting, and uh, we were talking about this the other day. I'll, I'll never forget this. Eventually, finally, his face kind, uh, fades into view. And he says, Brian, are you there? I said, yeah, yes, doctor. And, and he breathed this big sigh of relief. And his next line, I always get so nervous when I see your name on my appointment list. The last thing you want to hear from the top specialist in the world. That was the kind of situation this woman was facing. Doctors couldn't help her. She could not be healed by anyone, verse 43 says. Now, that also meant uh, she was considered ritually, ceremonially unclean. You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 15, but essentially that meant she was kept in isolation. She couldn't go to synagogue. Uh, she couldn't worship publicly. If anyone sat where she sat, they would be considered Unclean, and so she couldn't go and have dinner with her, her friends and family. Now, there was provision made for people in this kind of situation when they were found to be cleansed of their discharge. But you see the hitch here. This woman's long-term wound meant long-term distress for her in more than one way. Long-term affliction in more than one sense of the word. For 12 long years, she had been considered per perpetually, ritually unclean. As long as Jairus' daughter had been alive, think about it that way, this woman had been unclean. She'd been suffering. So you see the hopelessness of the situation. Now we know as readers of Luke's gospel by this point that this is precisely the kind of person that Jesus came to save. And so if you've been following along so far, you might be waiting with bated breath to see what Jesus is going to do in this situation, something that seems so desperate at this point. Luke 4 and verse 18, you remember what Christ said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
And Luke has a, has a keen sense of delight in showing the Lord's kindness and compassion and tenderness for people in this particular kind of plight who have no other options, who've come to the utter end of themselves. We know what Jesus so wonderfully uh, proclaimed back at the end of chapter five. It's not those who are well, who have need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then he makes the, the connection that we have to draw forward even to a passage like this, a connection that exposes the brokenness of sin and the fallenness of our condition in this world, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, brothers and sisters, that's not to say that this woman's particular condition could be connected to a particular sin in her situation. The Bible doesn't tell us that. In fact, the Bible cautions us against making those kinds of connections where it's not clearly warranted. But it does consistently urge us to look beyond the desire for temporary relief from earthly suffering to eternal deliverance from everlasting torment. The Bible consistently urges us to look beyond the desire for temporary relief from earthly suffering to eternal deliverance from everlasting torment. Each of these episodes show that. Each of these episodes we have small-scale demonstrations of the greater promise of everlasting salvation the gospel brings, healing of both body and and soul found in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a near view and there's a far view in each one of these episodes. In verse 44, this woman comes and she searches out the Lord. For 12 years, she's looked in vain for a remedy for her condition. Now just think what a picture that is of us in our fallen state, searching in vain for remedies in the world, the uselessness, the impotency of all but Christ as a remedy for our greatest need of all of our ailments. At last she hears of Christ. She hears of the great physician and she comes seeking him out. And notice how she comes. Her faith is small. She doesn't approach him in the way others do in the biblical text. She doesn't come to him as so many others do in scripture. She doesn't um, come up and call his name. Uh, She approaches him from behind. She doesn't cry out. She reaches for the hem of his garment. And so it's not exactly what you would call exemplary faith. It's meager faith. It's small faith. But it's faith. It's faith nonetheless. And Jesus does not qualify the kind of faith that he is pleased to smile upon when we come to him. He doesn't say, get your act together and work something up before you 
come to me. In fact, he encourages us in just the opposite direction. He says, if you have faith the size of a grain of mustard, you can come to me and you can ask and you can say to that mountain move and it will move into the heart of the sea. He hears us. He hears us in the weakness, in the smallness, the meagerness of our faith. He encourages us to come to him. It's not the measure of our faith, but the object of our faith that accomplishes the work. It's Christ upon whom our faith rests. It's the the mighty one that does the work when we call upon him. Apart from him, we can do nothing. So this woman comes, and in that way, she dares to reach out in the timidity of her weak, uh, maybe uh, floundering faith, and she touches the Holy One of Israel. And it says, immediately, her discharge of blood ceased. She doesn't contaminate him. His healing power delivers her of all her uncleannesses. In an instant, 12 years of pain and distress and isolation are gone. That's the near view. That's the bodily healing that we see here. But her problems aren't over. If you see what happens immediately following, Jesus says, who was it that touched me? Now she has another problem to deal with. This woman who uh, probably had not had very much a social interaction for 12 years, this woman who has forced her way uh, through the crowd at risk of causing Christ and everyone around her to become ceremonially unclean now finds the, the spotlight squarely upon her in the middle of this enormous crowd and she can't slip away. She can't slip away incognito. Jesus knows what had happened and now she is being called upon to publicly declare her faith in him. Friends, it is not as if the Lord Jesus Christ didn't know who touched her. In the fifth chapter of Mark, Jesus turns around to see her who had done this. The word there is uh, feminine. So it is no secret to Christ who has touched him. What is he doing then? He is calling for an open confession, an open confession before men of her faith in him. Acknowledge me before men. Now, first, Peter, the voice of reason, he speaks up and he says, Master, let me tell you something. The crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. Everyone is touching you. How could you possibly tell? He's perplexed by uh, the question, Jesus, isn't it clear? Everyone is, is pushing in on you. But notice what Jesus says. Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. So this was a kind of touch that differed from the touch 
uh, others were pressing in upon him with. What was it that made it different? Power had gone out from him. So there was a kind of reaching out, there was a kind of grasping for him that wasn't the same as that of others in the crowd. And now Jesus is calling upon her to act in light of what he is going to say before very long. In the very next chapter, in chapter nine, if you just turn over there, in chapter nine, verse 26, he says, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the son of man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the father and of the holy angels. So here's a woman who had been a spectacle in the world and now she is facing this question of will she be a spectacle for Christ? Will she stand up and say, my faith is in him. He is the one I put my trust in. He is the one that healed me. He is the one in whom power is found. Verse 47 says, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Again, I love what Mark says here in his account of this. He says, the woman came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Told him the whole truth. Openly, unreservedly, she made it known the what, why, and how of everything that had happened, how she had come to him, what he had done on her behalf. Now, verse 48 says, Jesus said to her daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. Now, it's here we get to see what the distinguishing mark in that touch was. It was faith. Your faith has made you well. It was not, young people, listen to this. This is important. It was not, mere association with Christ. It was not that she was close to him. It wasn't the fact that she rubbed shoulders, so to speak, with the Lord. It wasn't magic. It wasn't even the touch per se. It was faith. It was the faith behind the touch. So brothers and sisters, as we think about ourselves, as we think about our own relationship with the Lord. Saying your prayers, for example, doesn't get the Lord's attention. Asking in faith does. Asking in faith does. Religiosity does not impress the Lord. It doesn't bend his ear, but pleading with him in faith does. Pleading with him Trusting in his promises inclines the heart of God toward us. I want you to think back to what it says uh, at verse 40 at the end there. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. There was a, a great crowd crushing in 
upon the Lord Jesus there. And there, the word that is used there for pressing around him is actually the same word Jesus uses in the parable of the four soils, uh, where it talks about the, 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 the thorns that choke out the seed of the word. People who hear the word, but their fruit doesn't mature. And that's exactly what you have here. There are a lot of people standing on the shore of that sea that day, and they were excited. They were ready to receive Jesus. They were ready to welcome him when he came ashore. They were eager to listen to him. They were very religious people. They were in the company of Christ, but they didn't possess the most vital thing, the only vital thing in in the truest sense of, of the word, the only thing that brings life eternal, which is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in the Son of God. For all of the, those people who were pressing, crushing in upon Christ, they didn't share the one thing that was necessary with this woman. Faith in him. And there is a life and death difference between association with Christ, between knowledge of Christ, even assent and faith in the Lord Jesus. There are many people in the world today, there are many people in the church every week, people who are very religious, people who give assent to the teachings of Christ. Uh, They don't deny that the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord is true, for example, but their faith isn't in him. And some of you, Uh, perhaps, are in that position. You haven't made the move, as it were, from one situation to another. You haven't moved from accepting that something is true of Jesus Christ to actively putting your trust in him as the neediest of souls, Uh, pursuing him as your only hope, the only treasure of life as this woman did, she came to him saying, I need cleansing. I need Christ's healing touch. Now, have you done that with the Lord? Have you come to him, bringing the condition of your soul before him? When Jesus says, your faith has made you well, go in peace. He is speaking to that far view we talked about. He's speaking to a newfound relationship uh, with the Lord. You notice here he calls her daughter. You see the tenderness, the compassion that he has uh, for her. He claims her as his own. He gives her a place in the family of God. He doesn't just heal her physically, he heals her inwardly. He heals her spiritually. Now she has a family. Although the, the Bible tells us that the Lord Jesus, the one who was pierced for us in him, there is opened for us a fountain for sin and uncleanness. It says that he is life and breath and healing and wholeness for all that lay hold of him. In faith. Isaiah 53 Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So I would ask you this day, is your faith in him? Are you trusting and resting in him as he is offered in the gospel? Have you come to see what Isaiah says when he speaks not of physical realities, but of spiritual realities, that the whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. That's how the Bible describes us, apart from the work of Jesus Christ within the heart. Have you come to the end of yourself like this woman has, saying you have nowhere else to go, no one else to seek, no one to look to, but the Lord Jesus. You're hopeless. You are desperate apart from him. He's your only hope. But also that if you cry to him, if you say, heal me, O Lord, you shall be healed. Save me, O God, and I shall be saved. That is the promise of God's word. Verse 49, we get to catch back up with Jairus and his daughter's situation. And while Jesus is still speaking to this woman, someone from the ruler's house comes and he says this, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. So Christ's delay uh, with this woman with the issue of blood has spelled disaster for Jairus, it would seem. The looming fear, this impending loss that drove Jairus to Christ in the first place, now it's become reality. Now it, it's, it's too late. And everything has been building in the progression of uh, these stories in Luke's account to this point. We're not just dealing with danger or demons or disease anymore. This little girl is dead. All hope seems to be lost. But is the messenger right? Is it pointless to trouble the teacher any longer? I would submit to you that that is one of the questions this text encourages us to ask. Is it pointless to trouble the teacher any longer? Is there a line past which someone is so far gone that Christ cannot help them? Is there a place in our lives where the mercy of Christ cannot reach? Are there times where things are just so desperate we shouldn't bother the teacher? Church, the, the, the teaching of this text is an emphatic no. There is no such time. Take all your troubles, take all your woes, however desperate they may be, to him. And you see that in the verses that follow. Jesus hears this. He hears what the messenger says, and he answers him. He says, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. He hears what the messenger says, and it's wonderful. Jesus begs to differ. He says, you won't be the last word on what my power is able to do. Do not fear. 
only believe and she will be well. Put your trust in me. And so he calls Jairus to take this most desperate of situations without, rely, without denying the reality of what he's facing and look to him in faith anyway. Jairus is facing this uh, predicament where all hope seems to be lost. He's at a point in life that most of us have been spared from um, the loss of a child. Some of you have faced that. In our day and age, we have not experienced that in the way that prior generations did on the same scale. Some of you have, and we need to remember, there are those in our midst that face great loss and that suffer in tremendous ways and be available to bear one another's burdens with them. John Owen had... I think 11 children, only one of them uh, made it to adulthood. Well, no, no matter who you are, you can look at this situation and it's the, the kind of thing that makes you want to say, this is wrong. This isn't the way things are supposed to be. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters, Jairus is still facing the kind of question that comes to each one of us. Whatever our circumstances may be, are we going to put our trust in the Lord? Are we going to put our faith in him? Will we choose faith over fear? Do not fear, only believe. Are we going to trust in the one who says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. The one who promises you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Church, there are no asterisks on that promise. There's no fine print on a promise like that. Both of these stories underline in a powerful way the connection between faith and salvation. To the woman with an issue of blood, Jesus says your faith has made you well. To Jairus, the Lord says, only believe and she will be well. Jairus believed while his daughter was on the brink of death, but what about now? It's like Jesus is saying, well, you ran to me when things were really desperate. What about when they seem beyond redemption? You looked in trust to me when, when things seemed really dire. What about when it seems impossible? Are you still going to look to me? Are you still going to put your trust in me? That gets to the heart of the nature of faith. Faith is not keeping your mind stayed on God, trusting in him when things seem tenable, when it seems like there's a reasonable chance things could swing in your favor and the Lord just might come through. Faith hopes against hope. That's that's what it says of Abraham in Romans chapter four, that by faith, Abraham, Abraham hoped against hope that he would be the father of many nations. Now, why? Where did he get that 
that kind of gumption? Where did it come from? Is it something that he, that he, he worked up from within? Was it kind, a, a kind of a resolve that he, he, he just kind of plumbed the depths? That's just kind of the way he was wired? No, church. Abraham hoped against hope that he would be the father of many nations as he had been told as he had been told. It was the word of God that formed the bedrock of his confidence. That is what his faith was fixed upon. It was the word of God where his surety was found. God had given the word. Now, where do you need to apply the call of faith in your own life? What promises do you need to rub into your circumstances and trust the Lord in? Christ continues on to Jairus' house. When he gets there, there's a great commotion and people are weeping and wailing. They've already called out the professional mourners uh, the flute players are all there. Don't dismiss the presence of the, of the crowd here, by the way. They are integral to the story in their own way. Uh, what do they do when Jesus says, don't weep? She's not dead. She's sleeping. They laugh. They scoff. So these are examples of, of that kind of ground in the parable of the, so, the, 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 the sower where they, they don't endure. They don't produce, produce fruit that matures. They are interested bystanders on one level. On one level, they're interested in the things of God. They want to hear what Jesus says, but in the end, they disbelieve. Jesus says, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. Now, there's a reason we use that word, sleeping, in Christian theology, uh, because it communicates the fact that bodily death is not the end. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13 says this, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Jesus takes that, that euphemism for death here and he exploits it. He takes the little girl by the hand and he says, child, arise. And her spirit returned and she got up at once. And that, that word at once is the same word we saw back in verses 44 and verse 47 where it says, immediately, speaking of the woman with the, with the issue of blood. It, it's just translated differently here, but it speaks to the immediacy of the impact of the word of Christ upon a life. One that looks to him in faith. Immediately, she got up. Christ speaks. The dead are raised to life. And the power of his word is all that is needed. He tells them to give her something to eat as a proof 
of her recovery. This was not just a specter of their imagination. Church, when a man or a woman looks in faith to the promise of Christ's word, Jesus Christ can and will bring life where there is death. He will. He raises the dead to walk in newness of life. This is why we are here today. This is why Christ came into the world. Hebrews 2 and verse 14. Since therefore the children share, that's us, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, he saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Christ's own words, Revelation 1 and verse 17, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. This is his promise. This is our hope. Let's go to him together. Father, we are so very thankful for your kindness to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. God, thank you for the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that he abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. We thank you, God, for the promise of your word that if we believe in him, we will be saved. God, teach us to look to you in our neediness and desperation, not only the moment of salvation, but every day of our life. Cause us, Lord, to forsake all other gods, all false sources of salvation, and to trust in you alone, to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name, amen.